Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're just doing a little pre-talk talk here and uh, came up with the conclusion that no version of life is easy. <laughs> and, and, you know, I always like to quote uh, Dennis Prager who quotes his, his good friend's mother that says, that the, the, says the, only, the only people who don't have any problems are the people who you don't know very well. <laughs> and, you know, I think that if, if one, one approach to life that I think has served me very, very well is just starting with the basic premise that life is difficult. It doesn't mean that life isn't joyous. It doesn't mean that the world isn't beautiful. It doesn't mean that God isn't good. All of those things are true. But, but I think just getting from day to day is not necessarily easy. And I think that we're so busy assuming that for everyone else it is easy, that we are afraid to admit it to ourselves, or think that there's something wrong with ourselves if we kind of struggle. But I actually think that that is the, the basic truth of life. You know? It is, it is challenging. Um, so, you know, if you think about it just sort of Kabbalistically speaking, this, this realm that we inhabit, this dimension is called Olamasiya, which means the world of action. And yet, human beings are called Ad- Adam, because it comes from the word Adama, which means earth, which the Gomorrah explains means that because we're made out of earth, we're, we have laziness built into us, because the earth just sits there. So here you have two two opposite sides of the pole. On the one hand, this is the world of action. On the other hand, we're made out of earth and we're lazy. So if you look at life from that perspective, it's just, it's just, it's mired in conflict. It's mired in conflict. Just from the, from the get-go, it's mired in conflict. So, anyway, but it doesn't mean that there isn't tremendous beauty surrounding us. It doesn't mean that God isn't with us every single moment and that God is good. But these things all coexist simultaneously, right? So, so anyway, I came across this teaching, and I've been wanting to share it with you. It's in uh, in the Gomorrah in in, in uh, Nadarim on page forty-one A, if you want to find it. And uh, I'll just start it off. And there's a lot of things that I love about this. Um, let me read you the the uh, the opening verse here. It's actually kind of a scary verse. Don't don't get freaked out. We're not. It's really the end of the verse that we're going to be concentrating on, not the first extremely scary part of the verse. So don't worry. But anyway, here it goes. So this is coming from um, from Sefer Devarim, from the book of Deuteronomy. It's actually chapter twenty-eight, verse forty-seven and verse forty-eight. If you want to look it up. So it says in the Torah, God is speaking, because you did not serve. Hashem your God, amid gladness and goodness of heart, when everything was abundant, so you will serve your enemies who Hashem will send against you in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and without anything. So, that's a, that's, that's a bit terrifying. By the way, I want to just tell you um, a great of our Torah explanation that I heard for the beginning part of that. Because I think a lot of people hear this because you did not serve Hashem your God amid gladness and goodness of heart when everything was abundant, that they think, that, that I think people hear that verse and they think, okay, God says, I gave you all this good stuff and you weren't sufficiently appreciative, now I'm going to zap you. 
right? I think it's very easy to read that verse in that way. So I saw a wonderful um, explanation, a wonderful shot from in the name of the Sassover Rebbe, who explains it in a, in a very brilliant way, I think, um, which is that, you see, joy protects a person against sin. See, because when you're happy, you're not running after, you're not, ap- you're, you're not running after um, forbidden things, basically. Um, and so, so when a person isn't happy, that's what makes them run after things that aren't good for them. And then they start to get themselves in trouble. And then, you know, there, there can be some sort of um, uh, retribution, uh, unfortunately. So it's not, so, so understand this. He says, the Sassover explains, because you did not serve Hashem your God amid gladness and goodness of heart when everything was abundant, meaning to say that, that we were finding our joy in other things. But if we find our joy in God, then we're not going to run out after impermissible things. So that's why, that's why it's really important to find a minion or find a community where you can not just observe the Torah or whatever it is, but you can celebrate. You, you, it's a vehicle for celebrating life. That's, that's, that's really important. But anyway, I wrote it up because I want to get to the second part. It says, Hashem will send against, you know, you will serve your enemies, so Hashem will send against you in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and without anything. So that's, wow. That's, I mean, that's just, there's a one just blow after another blow. And, and now, here, here, here's what I love about this. The rabbis want to know, what does this phrase mean without anything? <laughs> and if you think about it, it's actually kind of hilarious because what we've just heard is in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and without anything. And the rabbis are just like, can you be more specific? What does is, what is without anything mean? <laughs> and... The reason why I love that, just it gives you such a, an appreciation for at least one form of Torah methodology. The appreciation that every single word, every single phrase in the Torah means something specific. There are no, there are no just sort of rhetorical flourishes. Everything means something. You know, and, and it's just such a uniquely Jewish way of thinking because I think that if you show this to a thousand people, maybe one out of the thousand would say, so what exactly does without anything mean? So they give several answers. They give several answers. I'm not going to go through them. I want to go to the, to the last answer because I think that, that this is really one of these uh, meaning of life moments right here. You know, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to Paro uh, and says, you know, you've got to let the Jews go. God has sent me. You've got to let them go. And, and Paro says back to him, who is this Hashem? Who is Hashem that I should be mindful of him? So that, that's a very enormous statement that Paro's making. Now let's just contextualize it for a moment. To this day, like elementary school kids around the world in their textbooks are learning about ancient Egyptian you know, the, that empire, like the, the majesty of it, right? And, 
anyone who is like running it, who is the, the, the king of ancient Egypt, you know, during the height of ancient Egypt, like you can imagine that this person was a, must have been a very gifted person. He must have known a lot of stuff, like just the engineering and the architectural feats that were around them, right? And yet he didn't know who Hashem was. So in other words, it's possible to know a lot, but not to know the crux of everything. Or you can know the crux of everything and not know a lot, but if you know that one thing, you know everything. So with that in mind, with that as just a preface, so it says here, Abai says, remember, we want to know, what does it mean that we're going to serve God without anything? What does without anything mean? So Abai says that we have a tradition from our forefathers. There is no truly destitute person. Destitute means poor, right? There's no truly poor person except he who is impoverished of understanding. So what does it mean that you're going to have, you're going to serve God without anything? That you're going to have nothing? It means that a person won't have this most critical element of everything, understanding, das. And I, I would suggest, in, in my opinion, what, what das is referring to here is knowledge of God. That, that would be my, my, my interpretation and my understanding. And so it goes on. It says, in the West, in Eretz Yisrael, they said, he who has understanding within him has everything within him. He who does not have this within him, what is within him? Nothing. If he acquires this, what does he lack? If he does not acquire this, what has he acquired? Uh, I'll read that again. That's, I was thinking that, I, and I'm serious about this, it would be great to have that phrase along buildings as you drive down like just a huge building length thing like can you imagine like you know it would be it would be great where's that written this is in Nadarim 41a he who has understanding within him has everything within him he who does not have this within him what is within him nothing if he acquires this what does he lack if he does not acquire this what has he acquired Meaning a person can have mansions and, you know, money pits and everything like that. But if they don't have a basic awareness of Hashem, what have they acquired? What, what do they truly have? And if they only have this, a knowledge that there's a God and that He fills the entire world and that there's meaning to life and there's purpose to each and every one of us and that we all have a role to play... If you truly understand that, what are you missing? If you only have that, what are you missing? So, so Rabbi Freeman wanted to kind of go further into this. He was saying that, 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 that this understanding is, is more than just a simple awareness of that there is a God and that he's doing these things. But that a person is a, what's called a bardas, meaning to say a, a, a child of das, or, or that, that, they, that, that it's integrated within their consciousness, and that they, that they own, 
that they own this quality. You know, it's not just a, a fleeting thought. Rabbi Sutton um, said, said in the name of Reb Shlomo something very interesting. He said that Reb Shlomo said that most people are like motels, meaning to say that a bit of inspiration or a good thought comes into their head and then it checks out the next moment. <laughs> he says, your mind can't be like a motel. If you, if you hear something that's worthy, if you, if, you, if you hear something, if you learn something, you have to integrate it into your very consciousness and understanding and approach to life. And it's just the temptation is, especially in, in our day and age, where we, we live amidst sensory bombardment. It's like just constantly, you know, constantly, 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 constantly. It's just very hard to hold on to thoughts. So, you know, that, that's why it's, um, it's so important to, to review your learning, right? If you hear something good, you've got to review your learning. Listen to it again. Go over it in your head and ask yourself a question on it. Like say, okay, if that's the case, you know, I'll tell you what I, what I think is a, a good form of learning, right? That if you learn something, you go over it in your head and you ask yourselves questions on it to the point where what you just learned doesn't make any sense to you. <laughs> because you've been able to tear it down <laughs> with all these questions that you have. And then you got to build it back up. <laughs> then you've got to find your own answer for why that works. And then at that point, you own that teaching. Because you're not just repeating something that you've heard, but you yourself have provided what's for you anyway, a compelling explanation why that makes sense. At that point, you've taken the teaching and you've taken your soul and you fuse them together. Rabbi, um, Rabbi uh, Noam Weinberg, uh, Shalom from the founder of Eshat Torah, used to tell his students something very, very beautiful. That he would tell them, he would say, know what you know. Know what you know. And what I, what I think he meant by that is that, you know, I, I, I'll tell you something. I don't know if you've experienced this. I know I, I've experienced this. Where you hear a speaker, and the speaker starts to say over a thought that you've heard before. And so, what do you do? You tune out immediately. <laughs> it's sort of like, ah, I've heard that, I've heard that. So I found myself doing that, and then, and then I stopped myself, and I said to myself, if he stopped in the middle right now, could you go up there and finish his thought? And almost always, I'd answer myself, no, I couldn't. And then I'd say to myself, you didn't hear it the first time. What do you mean you're, he's repeating himself? You, were, you didn't hear it, you haven't even heard it once yet. So then I would try to listen. So you see, people are like, make a very critical error when they say, I've learned that. They don't mean they've learned that. They mean, they mean they've heard that. <laughs> Hearing something and learning something are an ocean apart. It's an ocean apart. And um, I really recommend that it's sort of like when you're driving in your car or when you're walking down the street, you know, like it says in Shema, but really, you know, like you're going over some of these things and, and, you're, and you're asking yourself questions on them. You're trying to almost tear them apart. Not, not in a cynical way, but in a very analytical way. And then that process builds it up again. As I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, and 
One of the greatest things I ever heard him say, really, and I've tried to do this, I, I, I can't say I've been successful, but I've tried to do it, is that he says that with every new piece of Torah that you learn, the entire Torah is new. Because now you're seeing the whole Torah through that new teaching. But in order to achieve that, you have to have all of your learning in front of you so that when you learn something new, it's now being applied to this massive information that's in front of you at all times. And then you integrate it into everything that you've learned up until this point. So you're like building this system. You're building this, this whole blueprint and outlook of the world. And then it only gets richer and more detailed as you go through it. But that's, that's, that's one of the ways of holding on to your learning. Okay. So, you know, we're... Every year, and it, it seems to me like this is a tremendous privilege. I know it sounds strange, but to use the word privilege. But every year, we get the opportunity to be slaves again in Egypt and to go free. It's, it's interesting, you know, that we, that we live with that consciousness. And we've lived, we, we, the Jewish people, have lived with that consciousness for literally thousands of years. Thousands of years. Where every year we, we, we're back into the, the trenches of Egypt. And then we're miraculously saved. So it's an incredible thing to go through, year in and year out. Um, maybe we'll have time to get to the dates and things like that, but... There's something that I want to mention. It's, it's three Parshas only, really. It's Parshas Shmos, it's Parshas Ve'era, and it's Parshas Bo. And now, that's the three. And then we're out by the end of the third. And now it's Parshas Beshalach, and now we're out. Okay, the Egyptians are still chasing us. We're going to have the parting of the Red Sea now. We're going to have the manna falling from heaven. All sorts of miracles. But we're out of Egypt, finally. Now, there's something that I found that's almost like a theme in the Torah that I just want to point out to you because it just it, it, it affects our everyday lives. So, so Hashem has just torn down this incredible civilization, systematically completely dismantled it. And you know, I've um, I always think of this. It, it, it it's like. It's like an amazing movie, but only it actually happened. Like imagine, you know, before all the plagues started, you have Moshe, his wife, and his two kids, and they're on this donkey, or maybe there's a couple of donkeys, and they're heading toward the ancient Egyptian capital. And there it is, like there's the sand, like the back of Moshe and his wife, the back of the donkeys, you're looking at that in the distance, and they're approaching this tall, magnificent, ancient civilization, right? And now, without a gun, without a, a mortar, without, you know, a grenade, they're now leaving, they're now approaching you with a couple of million people and the entire civilization is in ruins. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible. Just the hand of God. So, listen to this. The Jews are now leaving in that picture that I just spelled out. Here's what it says. 
It happened when Paro sent out the people that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, because it was near. For God said, perhaps the people will reconsider when they see a war, and they will return to Egypt. So God took the people toward the way of the wilderness to the Sea of Reeds. So in other words, God has just torn down this massive civilization, right? And by the way, we we saw something very similar in our own lifetimes with the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, and that was, in in a way, in, in some ways, perhaps even more miraculous, because there was no war. I mean, you had an entire empire spanning countries and countries and countries, right? You had Romania, and you had Poland, and you had Czechoslovakia, and you had Bulgaria, right? You had all of these countries, Estonia and Latvia, like all of these countries, the Ukraine, all under the dominance of the Soviet Union, and it literally crumbled in a period of days. Amazing. In our lifetimes, before our faces. So, so you see God's power. You see what God can do. And yet, what does it say? It says that God now has to lead us the long way out of Egypt, not the short way, not the short way, because it could be that we're going to see the Philistines who are going to want to wage war on us and we're going to get afraid and run back to Egypt. So, I just want to make sure I'm communicating. God who can do absolutely anything can also make us not afraid of the Philistines. Or, he can make the Philistines not want to make war on us. Or he can preoccupy the Philistines so that they're running to another place and we're never going to interact with them. There's a giant irony going on over here. An entire ancient, magnificent civilization that we're still talking and learning about has been ripped to shreds, and then God says, "Uh uh-oh, there's some people over there. Oh, the Jews are going to get scared and run back to Egypt. I'll take them this way. Here's the point. Do you see how it never stops being a partnership between us and God? That's the point. It never, ever stops being a partnership between us and God. Can can God have made the Philistines go away? Can he have made us not afraid of them? Of course. But at this point, it was time for our free will to kick in and for us to play a role because God wanted us to play a role at this point. You know, later on in the Parsha, it's a slightly different dynamic, but again, you you just see something, it's kind of crazy. God splits the sea. Now, uh, there's so many miracles involved with that, but on the smallest level, you see his mastery over water on the smallest level, right? There's so much more going on. And then what does it say right after the sea is split? It says, and the Jews didn't have any water for three days. <laughs> so literally the next, the next point after the sea is split. God has just shown his mastery over water. God can do anything that he wants with the water. And it says the Jews didn't have any water for three days. 
So the Talmud interprets that, that they say wherever you see it talk about water in the, in the Torah, it's talking about Torah. And because we weren't learning, then that, that created all of this, this, this great vacuum and all sorts of panic. Um, it's an advertisement. We can't stop learning. We, we, we absolutely have to make ourselves a daily Seder. A daily learning seder, really. Even if it's what, even if it's five minutes, honestly. You know, I'm I'm always saying that there there are all these great books which are um, there's a, just one paragraph of a time with a, a deep thought. Um, I love Rabbi Freeman's book, uh, 365 Meditations of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I think the main title of it is Bringing Heaven Down to Earth. Hugely recommend that. It's just tiny paragraphs, but each one is super clear and super deep. Just to read one of those. Just because it's so easy, it's so easy to just unwind our understanding of the world. It's like if you if you have if you have a point of view that that there is a God and He's running the world, you have to hold on to that with all of your might. Because the nature of reality is is that is such that all you'll see is more and more powers, and they become stronger and stronger around you, and bigger and bigger around you. And 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 you know, like Rabbi Wolfson said so brilliantly one time, he says, "Can you imagine you go up to someone and say, did you eat breakfast?'" And he goes, "No, I ate breakfast yesterday." It, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> Breakfast is a daily event. You ate breakfast yesterday, mazel tov. That doesn't... Right now you're hungry, though. So he said that that's the same thing with amuna, with faith. Faith has to be consumed on a daily basis. It has to be consumed on a daily basis. And, and if someone doesn't do that, you know where it says, this is kind of a scary thought, it says this, that if you leave the Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. So there's a very, there's a very, if you, if you distance yourself, it, it has a, a large effect on you, a surprisingly large effect on you. You know, I'm not great at ping pong, but I used to love it at one period in my life. And, uh, and I never got especially good at it, but I, I, I enjoyed it. And, and I found that if I didn't play for one day, I saw a difference in my game. And, and people who are professional mu- musicians, especially, will tell you, if they don't play for one day, their, their craftsmanship suffers. They see it. They see it tangibly. It's the same thing with all of us with our amuna, with our faith. If you neglect it for a day, you feel the impact of it, and it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't become obvious that you're lacking it until all of a sudden you begin to start having real problems, right? And then you go, oh, 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 oh. So I beg you, you know, please try to, try to, you know why they call it a Seder, by the way? They call it a Seder because there, there's a, an order to it. It means to make a fixed time, okay? And in fact, believe it or not, it says in Gemara Shabbos that one of the questions that were asked after we leave the world, after 120, is, did you make a fixed time for Torah study? 
All of us are going to be asked that question, right? And by the way, I always want to say it's a different idea, but on this, I, I heard in the name of the Biala Rebbe, that, that Torah bi'ito, that's what it says, Torah in its time. That means a fixed time, right? But he wants to say, Torah bi'ito, did you say the right Torah at the right time? <laughs> like when you're having a conversation with someone, sometimes you have to make sure to say the right thing at the right time. Sometimes you, you know, you just kind of want to tell them whatever it is. But think first, is this, is this what the person needs to hear right now? By the way, since we just finished reading about the plague of darkness, I, I, I'll tell you something on that subject. I heard this from my brother-in-law, Jorge, that, uh, that I really, it's, it's, uh, for me it was a powerful thought. See, it says for the, the, for the Egyptians it was darkness, for the Jews it was light. Right? And he said that if, you're, if you are telling someone over a thought and they're not ready for that thought, for you it can be light and for them it can cause darkness. Isn't that interesting? That, that if the person is not ready for the thought, you can actually be bringing them to a place of darkness with that thought because they're not ready for it yet. Very, very interesting. You know, we tend to, and I'm certainly guilty, I'm sure, of having done that many times, that I just, in terms of my excitement over learning something and my excitement in wanting to share, sometimes I don't appreciate that what I'm sort of into at the moment might be extremely esoteric for the other person. <laughs> and then the other person just just leaves thinking, oh, what is all this stuff? I, I don't get any of this. This is like crazy stuff, you know? Because they're, they're not in that place to appreciate it, like a very fine, very you know, ethereal idea. But why should they be, right? I mean, why would there be an expectation that they would be? You know what I mean? They haven't done anything wrong. So again, that's, that's Torah bi'ito. Torah bi'ito. The right Torah at the right time. Okay. So, just talk about one more idea. I want to just mention this. This came to me on Shabbos. I kind of got excited about this idea. You know, we... we the, the, the Torah, very interestingly, gives different time periods for how long we were slaves in Egypt. So I'll go through them with you. One time period is 430 years. Another time period is 400 years. Another time period is 210 years. So why? It looks like, you know, it looks like, why is the Torah changing its story? Like, like get the basic date right, you know, of how long we were in, you know, slavery for. So if you look in the Rashi and you look in the commentaries, they're all chronicling the period of enslavement from different historical landmarks. That's, that's what it is, okay? So it's 430 years from the time that God promises Abraham that he's going to have a child and that the children are going to be, you know, strangers in a strange land, basically. That's the Brisbane of Asarim. That's the covenant between the packs in English, okay? So that's the 430-year count. Okay, 30 years later, Hashem blesses Abraham and Sarah with Yitzchak, with their son Isaac. Counting from the birth of Isaac, since Isaac is, is, is traveling around Israel and everything like that, and that's the sort of the beginning of the exile because they're not settled yet. So that's the 400-year count, okay? And the 210-year count 
is how long we were actually slaves in Egypt itself, like with the servitude. Okay? Now, what's interesting about this 400-year count is that by the 400-year count, um, that, that if you wondered why is Pesach on the 15th of Nisan, right? It's because that was Yitzchak's birthday. Yitzchak is born on the 15th of Nisan, and it says it's going to be 400 years. So exactly 400 years later is Pesach. So Pesach is on Pesach because it's Yitzchak Avinu's birthday. Okay? However, if you want to get a little, <laughs> a little more involved, a year before Yitzchak is born, the angels come to announce the birth of Yitzchak one year from then which was also on the 15th of Nisan, and it says that Avram and Sarah were eating matzahs. <laughs> and they say, why were they eating matzahs? They were eating matzahs because it was Pesach. <laughs> so, perhaps Yitzchak Avinu was actually born on Pesach, not Pesach happened because of Yitzchak Avinu. <laughs> so, you have like this sort of like, these tw- swirling time constructs because basically when God envisioned the world, there were certain landmarks of time-space that were sort of put into place. So it seems that perhaps Pesach was one of these early ones that even predated Yitzchak Avinu. But we have to see, maybe there are sources that trace it even further back that, no, 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 it's Yitzchak again, but we'll, we'll have to see. But anyway, so, so anyway, but, but here's the thing I want to say about the 400 years. This is really why I brought it up. So, so the last letter of the Olive Bays, right? You go from Olive all the way to Tuff. Tuff is the last letter of the Olive Bays. What is the gematria, the numerical equivalent of Tuff? 400. And we were slave for 400 years. In other words, when we got all the way to the end, then it was all over. That's the idea of the last letter of the olive base and the 400 years and the end of servitude. And the reason why that sort of like is interesting to me is because our mystical tradition is, is that God created the, the, the world out of the letters of the olive base. So in other words, all of these divine energies that were combined that are sort of symbolized by the letters, sort of like that's one construct and it ends in tough. And then at the end of that tough, we get out. And it says that in the Zohar, that all future redemptions are based on us leaving Egypt. And that the miracles are going to be so great when we leave, when Mashiach comes, that they're going to make the, the, the miracles of Egypt seem small. So, so again, that's going to be sort of like leaving sort of like the getter, the boundaries of the initial olive through tough and entering into this new realm because we know by by the resurrection of the dead the laws of nature are going to be different so it's sort of like this this idea of going just beyond okay so let's just wrap it up um, the sea is splitting the sea is splitting this week and one of the most beautiful deepest things that I ever heard was that the sea never stops splitting. 
that every step that you take in your life, that's the sea splitting in front of your face to this day. To this day. And then, you know, and don't stop. Don't stop moving. It takes courage, right? But this, the sea itself is splitting in front of you. And it's opening up to something beautiful, you know? And we should just all be blessed that we should be able to take this freedom that we have and take the best advantage of it. Just conclude with this one thought. The, the first mitzvah that the, the, the Jewish people get when we leave Egypt as a nation is to make a calendar. And I heard someone explain very beautifully that a slave isn't in control of their own time, but a free person is. And so when we left Egypt and we became free people, we became in control of our time for the first time. And that's why we were able to make a calendar. Now, someone shared with me in the name of Schwartze, Allah Shalom, just a, a great PS to that, which is, it, it says that when we left Egypt, the, 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 the dough didn't have time to rise, right? So he wants to learn it like this. Not that there wasn't enough time for the dough to rise, but because we were still slaves, we didn't have time itself. We were not masters or in possession of time itself yet. So we didn't have time for it to rise. Only after we became free people and became masters of our own time were we able to exert the power of time. Yeah. Now for some questions and answers. Um, the first one is a statement. You might be interested to know in the 12-step world there's yeah. an expression called time drunkenness. Someone is called Time dr- drunkenness? Yes, or, uh, uh, a time drunk. Interesting. Yeah. And it basically... I like that. That's great. It means, like, what the hell happened to the last three hours of my life? (laughs) They were spent on Instagram. (laughs) Right. And uh, that's that's one of the things that that people who struggle with that learn, is is to be the masters of their own time. Interesting. Interesting. Most of it. Interesting. And, and when, when they use it in, in the 12-step program, they're not talking about it as being a product of drunkenness, per se. It just, can just, be. But it it's just be. a general kind of losing track of time in general. Well, as like a personality quality? It's, it's um, I mean, it's, I call it more of a symptom than a personality right. quality. But, right. but as you, I'm sure, as I think, know, the drunkenness for those who go to that yeah. particular room yeah. is not the crux of the matter. It's what's underneath. Yeah. So you can have that struggle with or without those. Huh. Yeah, interesting. Um, interesting. But yeah. Um, the question was, um, I, I don't know if I heard, I, I can't quote you on this, but you were talking about how you learn something and you kind of digest it and go over it yeah. so that you really have reviewed what you learned. And, yeah. And can, but aren't there also some, I mean, we love our paradoxes, but aren't there also some things where you don't do that, where you just take it at face value, don't try to figure it out because you never will understand it? Certain certain myths. Well, certainly. I don't know. No, I don't think so, actually. I don't think so. Like, for instance, there's a whole category of uh, mitzvahs called um, uh, chukim, right? 
right, which are said that there's no rational basis for them. Like, for instance, um, mixing, uh, you don't mix um, linen and wool in your garments, right? And we're told there's no rational foundation for it. Um, so what, what I would say, just as a preface to this, is that, is that the God is infinite, um, and we're finite. And so there's a ceiling to what human intelligence can ultimately comprehend. And so what I think is so beautiful about the, the chukim is that it gives us entree to those realms that are super rational, which are above the rational mind. Do you understand? So, so in other words, I, I would make a very strong distinction between super rational and irrational. Right? No one is saying that not mixing wool and linen is irrational. It's just there's no rational explanation for it because it's super rational. It's beyond what the mind can comprehend. But through these mitzvahs and these practices, we're literally be given a passport to realms beyond ourselves. You know what I mean? So they're a tremendous gift, these things that make no sense, so to speak, quote unquote. Okay. But now to address what you said more specifically. We are supposed to exhaustively try to explain them, <laughs> but remain with the humility that we'll never fully understand the official, official reason. So even those things that we're told from the outset that we can't understand, we're, we're, we're not supposed to leave alone, but we're supposed to endeavor to understand them with the best of our ability. But we're still supposed to do them before we understand them. I mean, even if yeah. we don't understand them at all, we're still supposed to do them. Correct. And if you're a certain type of person, like me, you won't do them until you go, well, why do I have to do this? I'm not, I'm not going to do it until I understand why I have to do it. Right. So, so, by the way, it says in the Talmud, and this is so against every Western system of thought, but it's very important, that it's actually a bigger mitzvah to do something because you're commanded to do it than to do it from your free will. Exactly. And so we tend to think that, no, if I come to it on my own and I bring it to it a full heart, that is the highest form of observance. And the reality is, is the Talmud says, actually not, no, no. To be commanded to do it is, and to do it, and to be commanded to do it, and if you don't want to do it, and it's an even bigger mitzvah, because you're battling your own Yetzirah, you're battling your own negative inclination. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it all goes back to, if you want to get mystical about it, to the tree of knowledge, basically. Eating from the tree of knowledge, which is the idea of, as you go through life, asking yourself the question, who is the final authority? Is it me or is it God? If it's me, then it's very valid to say, I'm not going to do it unless I fully understand it. Because I am the final authority. But this idea that I'm the final authority in this magnificent, infinite world that I didn't make, inhabiting this complex bit of genius called my body, which I also didn't make, to have the chutzpah, to take credit for not only myself, but the entire world, and then declare myself the final authority, is the, is the utmost in arrogance. The utmost in arrogance. 
So yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful to do something with a full heart. And you can even come to a full heart, even if it starts with being commit. You can come to a full heart. But, but to make that the criteria, if I don't understand it, then... Oh. I mean, you know, I've heard so many people say, do you understand how aspirin works? No. Do you take it? Yeah. Do you understand how your computer works before you turn it on? No. Do you still use it without understanding how it works? Yeah. So all of a sudden, when it comes to this, you have to be like the maven, right? Right. It's like sort of gongzello. <laughs> you know, some things that are not good for you, you don't think, but they, let's say you have you pass out, you have an ulcer, you, it's a, a sign that you've got to slow down, or you got to, so some things you don't know are good for you, but they are good for you in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was okay, just wait, 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 wait. Uh, 